Thanks for joining us on episode 1,382 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. I am Dr. Ravi Ayer. I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to overcome fear is key. And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mayer. The greatest challenge comes out of this inability to separate experience from narrative. And it throws people into this idea that the things that they want in their life are defined by space and time. They define define the objects that they have to grab at. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's podcast, I interview Dr. Ravi Iyer. I asked Dr. Ravi about his journey and his faith. I also asked Dr. Ravi to share about his own journey through COVID as a physician. And Dr. Ravi also shares what he sees as the greatest challenge to humanity today. I've got a new book coming out called Inspired Living, Assembling the Puzzle of Your Call by Mastering Your Time, Your Talent, and Your Treasures. You can find out more about it and sign up for getting more information over at inspiredstewardship.com, Inspired Living. That's inspiredstewardship.com, Inspired Living. Born in Mumbai, Dr. Ravi Iyer is the founding physician and president of the Iyer Clinic LMG in Fairfax and Loudoun County, Virginia. He serves as the director of clinical research for Loudoun Medical Group. And the Reaper's Dance is come, has come out and it shares his story of his journey through COVID as a physician. He's a physician scientist, an inventor, an author, and an entrepreneur with research publications on the mechanisms of gene controls and several patents on veterinary and human medicines. Dr. Iyer serves as the CEO of Active Power, a nutrition and wellness company he founded, and he divides his time between his internal medicine practice, his clinical research, his family, and his two German shepherds. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ravi. Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about it in the intro. You you do a lot of different stuff. <laughs> and then on top of it, now here you're putting, you're writing a book, you've got the book out and all of those sorts of things. Can you talk a little bit more about your journey and what brought you to the point where you do all the things you do and now on top of it, you're putting this book out into the world? Uh, you, you don't get... Actually, I do only one thing, but it's just that I do have done it in for, for a long time, uh, almost four decades, and uh, and done it in different ways. 
The one thing that I've always been focused on is I am always intrigued by what makes life work and how do you make life work when it doesn't work for other people? Uh, how can you help make life work? So, and that is the foundational basis of what I do. Even as a physician, the reason people come to me is because there's something in their life that is not helping them live life the way they want to, and they're trying to help. ask me for help in getting them back to where they had about how they wanted to live it. And I only do three things. Either I remove the obstacle of whatever it was that was preventing them from enjoying life, or I reduce the effect of that obstacle. If I'm not able to remove it, I at least reduce it. Or if I can do neither of those two, then I teach them how to live with it and continue to enjoy life despite its presence in their life. So it's always the same thing. And to this end, I bring into play different tools, different techniques, different methodologies. And if I don't have a tool or a methodology, I have gone out and learned it or become good at it because I was always, I'm a student of life and I will go and acquire whatever it will take to allow me to do my job of helping people live life. Mm-hmm. So in in the process, I have been blessed with the ability to quickly acquire those methodologies, quickly learn and translate and execute. So if at all, you can say that that's, those are my blessings, those are my talents. But my gift is the ability to really empower people live life and to empower them to find the solutions that will enable them to live life. That is my gift. And all the talents I possess, my eloquence, my command of language, my thought process, my ability to analyze and dissect things, all of those are talents that I bring to the service of this one gift, which is enabling people to live life to their best potential. So in that sense, once you see it from that aspect, it becomes very transparent and very easy to understand the coherent harmony of how I do everything. Mm -hmm. And the book is just one more extension of just that because the pandemic for me was an enormously disempowering event not only from the point of the disease, but also from the point of the fear it caused and the rhetoric it inspired that was tearing the fabric of society apart, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And I felt that people who knew better, who had an ability to, uh, to do better, have to speak up. Uh, because I learned from my father that Evil in the world has power only from the silence of the good. Mm -hmm. And so if you know better, then you have to say something 
So I decided to write a book. Uh, and that's, this book is just the starting point of, of all of that. But, uh, that is where I am. One of the things that, that came to mind as you were talking, and we've talked about this on the show before, is this idea of your assignment versus your calling. And a lot of times, or, or your career versus your calling is the way sometimes people will put it. But I prefer assignment just because it, it's whatever you're doing in that moment. It could be a job. It could be a career. It could be something that earns you money. But it could also be being a parent, being a housekeeper, whatever, just whatever you're functionally doing. That that idea of that's how you do something, but your calling is usually deeper than that. And I think you called that out in what you were saying and that the the deeper meaning behind what you do is that meaning of helping people live a good life, live a better life. But yes. yet you do it, you apply it in a lot of different ways. So yeah. from the outside, it looks like, oh, you do all this different stuff. But the reality is you only do one thing. You just do it a lot of different ways. Is exactly. That see, this assignment and calling, and I'm glad you brought that up, is see, an assignment is imposed from outside. Right. It is an external narrative that is given to you from an external source, it is not coming from your being. A close uh, family member of mine once asked me, I, I, when I was really struggling to, to run the company that I had created, a wellness company, a nutritional supplement company, and I was struggling to make it go forward. And uh, she asked me, uh, why do you have to do it? Uh, and uh, to that I said, does a pregnant woman have a choice not to give birth? Uh, you're compelled, you're impelled from some force within to bring forth what is mm -hmm. there in you. A pregnant woman at the end of nine months is not cannot have does not have the option to say, "Hey, I, you know what? I, I'm not going to let this baby come out." So that's how I am with a lot of the things I do. It is it it comes forth from me in an irresistible way. It is not a, a uniform. It is not a shirt that I wear. And I have an option to wear a different shirt. No. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about your faith journey and how that has intersected with the work you do and the, the calling you, that you feel that you have. How, how did those things relate to each other? <clears throat> I grew up in a religious household. The act of Hindu religion was part of everyday life. We were in, in we were taught uh, in all the various prayers and uh, scriptures of Hinduism and so on and so forth. But that was externally imposed. It was not, in fact, uh, growing up as a kid, you it bothers you that you have to take time out from your games to <laughs> yeah. go and do your prayers. You got to fight so. against it. It's like, yeah, I don't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, but I guess it still seeped in to some extent. The, 
it seeped in to some extent and the transition point came when I was a teenager when I was I did pretty badly in, in college to the point that I had no hope of getting into most of the better medical schools. And I was languishing back in my hometown, it was a small town, and was going to a community college, and I was pretty much languishing. When I came across a book which made me look within myself, uh, it was actually written by a Britisher by the name of Paul Brunton, and he describes a book in which uh, he is uh, he's searching for wisdom among the holy men of India. And uh, he finds this remarkable sage in southern India who, in whose presence all the questions he had about life just melted away. And he had a profound grounding with an inner source of being, which in when whose presence, when he came into that, he suddenly felt changed and transformed in from this miserly frame that he had into a purpose that he suddenly realized that I am not just this body and this collection of identities that I have accrued, but there is something far more deeper and divine in me. And he had this experience without a single word spoken. He just came into the presence of this sage. And the sage was not saying anything. He just turned his eyes and looked at him. And he was stricken dumb. Uh, and was rooted in his seated position for several hours without movement. He could not move and he was having this transformative experience. Something about this man's story impelled me to go out and read more books about the sage. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sage did not speak much, but uh, whenever he did, there was somebody around him copying down his writings. And for the first time, I found that there was a coherent statement that he was making that gave actual grounding to every scriptural verse I had read in both Hindu and in the Bible, I, because my father had encouraged us to read it. And I suddenly realized that this sage, whatever he was saying, was grounded in deep experience. And it was not just some intellectual understanding of scripture. And he was, he gave me, he, he rec recommended to people who came to him, a process of self-inquiry that started with watching the cadence of your breath and to just follow the breath. Just follow the breath as it goes into your being and 
as it comes out and just watch and ask what is the source of this idea that I that arises in you? Where, where is the source of this I coming from? And I, so I was already bored with all the regimented uh, prayers that I had to do. So as an act of teenage rebellion, I, instead of doing the prayers, I would sit in the prayer position and I would do this thing because this felt to me more natural and more logical than just chanting some verses whose meaning was abstruse in Sanskrit. And I, I didn't really want to go through that. So I started doing this and in the process, over time, I started finding that I got, developed this ability to separate my reality from the experience of reality and the mental chatter that goes on about it. Mm -hmm. And as I became more and more skilled in that, I got this amazing ability to remain calm in the midst of stress. Because a lot of stress is the chatter that goes on. Somebody yells at you and that yelling initiates a, a counter yelling that goes on in your head. Sometimes it comes out in the form of insults from your mouth, but it's already going right. on a uh, uh, hundred times more inside you. And it stirs up a whole bunch of emotions that, and those emotions that are stirred up by that chatter become an alternative reality experience that now dominates the real experience in front right. of you. So that's in the, this that's the somebody cuts you off in traffic and all of a sudden it's personal when in reality they maybe didn't even just see you. But yeah. to you it's a very personal, angering you yeah. know, kind of experience. But I suddenly realized that the vast majority of humanity lives in this schizophrenic, <laughs> cacophonic blend of real real experience and virtual reality at the same time. Right. And we often are not able to separate the virtual reality from the real reality. Mm -hmm. And they, we blend it. We bring elements of the virtual reality into the real and then take elements from here and populate it. And we live this torn and what I call um, Tower of Babel kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And it is no wonder that we are any ability of what we can to produce value is so accidental because it is completely disrupted by this inability to control. So, in this growth, I was 17 when I started this process. And by the time I was 22, I became relatively skilled at it, but it was still an internal process. It started manifesting out by 22. I was in medical school and I was beginning to see patients and so on and so forth. And I was... I, I could start seeing the value it brought to my work with patients because my patients would be enmeshed 
in this, what I call the storm, the sensory storm of life, where they are being bounced down, buffeted by the reality, the, the, Mm -hmm. the concrete reality and buffeted by the virtual reality of their lives all the time. And I could walk into their presence. And when I walked in, I, I found that I was radiating around me this ability to stand separate from this. And in my presence, they found sanctuary. They could calm. Mm-hmm. They could calm down. They, I found that they, and it was all coming from this ability to watch my breath. <laughs> and by watching, gain control over my identity. And in this process, we actually capable of choosing the narrative that dominates my life. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing, just like what I do in life is only one thing and I bring different ways. This one thing has been the central theme of my life from 17 till now. And it, it has percolated through all my things. But to explain to you, that was the transformational moment. Mm-hmm. That was your your moment of looking at it a different way and beginning to experience that reality yeah. a different way. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit uh, about the book as well. You're putting out the the Reaper's Dance that's been out for a while now, and tell me a little bit about what brought you to write the book or, or what experiences. Are you putting this out? I guess, why Why do you want people to read this? What is it about this book that you're trying to, to put out into the world? So there are several books on COVID already. Uh, all the books that are there are focusing on the science of the pandemic. Either they're talking about the epidemiology of disease and how it spreads, how pandemics happen. There's an excellent book written by a Yale epidemiologist uh, about the pandemic, and he talks, delves deep into the science of it, into the virus and how it spreads and so on and so forth. There is another book written by an MIT uh, scientist uh, and a Wall Street Journal uh, investigative journalist that goes deep into the lab leak theory and uh, the, and very authoritatively, not mm-hmm. just fictional, not conspiracy, very authoritatively goes into it. There's a book written by an Australian investigative journalist on the same lines, but they all are talking about the science. They are talking about molecules. They're talking about, about bacteria and viruses. They're talking about organisms. They're talking about the disease as a pathology and lost in all the scientific jargon is real people. Because if there were no human race, what does it matter if there was a pandemic? So this is my particular angle on everything I have ever done. Disease has meaning because there is a human being beset by it. And if we lose our sight upon human beings, we are doomed. The reason why we had this pandemic in the begin with is because a bunch of scientists forgot 
why they were doing science in the first place. A bunch of scientists forgot that the purpose why they were trying to seek to understand viruses, the purpose why they were actually trying to manipulate viruses or divide and, and dissect them and re-put them back in is for the betterment of humanity, not for their own aggrandization of their intellectual prowess. And because these scientists forgot it, they became slack in their methodology. And because they became slack in their methodology, because they forgot that the real reason that they are playing with fire is so that they don't burn the house down. And because they were slack and they were disrespectful with the fire that they were playing with, they allowed it to escape. And at this point, uh, Scott, I will tell you, there is no longer any debate that it escaped. There is too much evidence out there all the way up to the congressional level. There's clear evidence. There's clear documented paperwork. It, uh, there are two aspects to it. One, there are group of three aspects. There were a group of scientists who are playing with fire. As simply put, that was it. They played with fire. That in itself was not a sin. But they played with fire disrespectfully. That was their sin. That was their primal sin. And then it escaped. And they compounded that primal sin by trying to cover it up. And because those group of scientists were enabled in playing with fire by a bunch of government agencies on both sides of the globe, their cover-up was also enabled by a bunch of government agencies who did not want their hands to be sullied. Mm -hmm. So these are the three stories of the why of the pandemic. But People are forgetting the mother who died and left two orphans. The pandemic selectively killed adults more than children. Globally, human trafficking of below poverty line children soared. Prostitution soared. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the people were driven into economic slavery. 25 million died. Hiroshima and Nagasaki produced 250,000 deaths. And because of that, we have the economic, the World Atomic Energy Commission, and we have the centralized agencies that supervise all countries on nuclear matters and so on and so forth, with real enforcement capability. That came out of just two explosions of 250,000 dead. This is 25 million dead, and we still do not have the checks and balances we need in society. Nobody is talking about during the lockdown how many abused women were locked in with their abusers, right. both with no place to go in a pressure cooker of a house where in, on top of disease being threatening them, and threatening their sanity, they were having economic hardship because they lost their job and were not having income, and that drove their abusers to alcohol. And according, and, and the beatings would start at twelve noon. I saw those beatings, the effect of those beatings the following day. Right. 
in my clinic. They would come and I would open, I would lift the pant leg to show, to look at a twisted ankle and suddenly discover bruises going all the way up the thigh. Right. So I, these stories were haunting. The husband who at 48-year-old husband, 52-year-old husband who had to say goodbye to his wife in a cell phone video. Mm -hmm. People did not have closure of funerals. Right. Mass cremations. If you look at all that, and that nobody is talking, Everybody, everybody is busy arguing about whether hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin was a conspiracy. And I am saying, hey, guys, you're losing sight of the real thing here. Right. The real human impact of it. Yes. Do you know why we know the story of 6 million Jews and the Holocaust? It is because people out there did not let people forget it. Human beings forget, especially. Oh, we're good at that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah, human beings, the more you are traumatic, the event, the more the impulse is to forget and gloss over. Right. And I bury it down and, and yes, bury it down. Which, by the way, your earlier thing that adds to that internal noise that we have because we don't really get rid of it we just try to yeah it becomes this nameless anxiety within us yeah so i the idea came out in thanksgiving of 2022 during a conversation i had and then it gripped me and i could not go and i could not sleep about it and then i said okay i'm going to write uh, I started writing December 10th, and uh, the book was done by February 11th, the following year. So it took me about 61 days to write it. And then I tinkered with it for another 60 to 90 days, and then I decided to publish it. I just took the self-publishing route. I just went to Amazon and Kindle desktop publishing, and it makes it really easy. And uh, I published it out uh, on Kindle and then paper paperback. and. And the book. The only downside to that is that because I had to publish, I have to promote it myself. I've sure. I discovered that writing the book is the easiest part of book writing. <laughs> uh, the uh, real advantage of going through a publisher is that they have all these built-in channels with uh, right. with various media outlets, and they are able to broadcast and they are able to get people to write uh, reviews. So I just had to send the book out to people and say, hey, why don't you just write what what you think about it? And every review I had is phenomenally good. There is one person who gave me a one star saying that I am politically slanted. But actually, I'm not. I'm the only one in all these people who yell about Trump. I'm the only one who actually... Describe all the bad stuff he did in his leadership, but I also gave him 110 marks out of 100 in the warp speed manufacture of the vaccine. Sure. He is the only guy who no one ever in the history of humanity has brought out a vaccine in eight months. And he did it. He didn't do the, he didn't 
Once he realized that the vaccine is not going to be ready before the November elections, he washed his hands of it, but he was responsible for creating it. The, the interesting thing is, and, and again, the, I, I think the truth is, right now, we have a tendency to demonize whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. The whole idea is the other side is all wrong, all evil, all it's this absolutism when the reality is that most people on both sides of the spectrum aren't uniform and there there is no one sort of uniform thing there's some good and some bad decisions and pretty much all of us on all sides of the political spectrum that, that if, if we were all if somebody was pure 100 percent good that would rise out and we would see that, but in the fact that there's that dichotomy and that that anger between sides is in part because we see and only look at what's wrong and don't even pay any attention to what's right or what the good things are. I think it's important to point out both sides again on wherever you sit on the political spectrum. There's <laughs> there's good on the other side too. That is. Yeah, we tend to look at life black and white. And, right. uh, and it's uh, not. <laughs> it is not. Now, there is no such thing as uh, only heroes and uh, villains. Uh, everyone in this game have done, did some things phenomenally well and also abysmally bad at the same it's time. So too. it doesn't matter. But again, you're losing sight. The, uh, what, what I'm saying is, Everyone who argues about this good and bad narrative of life loses fact, loses the sight of the fact that it is life that matters. Right. And, and life is precious. It requires to be protected at all times. It requires to be honored at all times. It requires to be nurtured and empowered at all times. And the only purpose of life is one. I have this on my Facebook page. It says the, the only one reason for life, and that is believe that you can contribute to people and work to find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the work that you do and what you've seen, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges facing us today? The greatest challenge comes out of this inability to separate experience from narrative. Mm -hmm. And it uh, throws people into this idea that the things that they want in their life are defined by space and time. They're defined, defined the objects that they have to grab at. And they, because when you are not able to separate experience from narrative, you move from being resourceful to being resource-hungry. What happens in people who are not... So there are three kinds of people. There are some people who are not able to create resources. They only acquire and they hold resources. For these people, they live a life of perpetual anxiety because they are always scrounging to gather for themselves the things that are important for their life. And they are 
perpetually afraid that whatever they have will go away. Will so taken. they are miserly in their use. They will not share. They will, they'll, they feel that they have to hold on to it. They live with this perpetual fear of want, which is the greatest want there is, because that kind of fear of poverty is a poverty that can never be eliminated. Mm-hmm. That These are people who have no real understanding of what it is to be able to be resourceful. Then the, the second category are people who are resourceful by accident. They, they also don't have a full grasp of how to be resourceful, but they recognize that every now and then they have been able to create something of value in their life. And for them, they lead lives of little less anxiety, but they are never really sure that their moments of excellence can ever happen. They don't have full command over their excellence. And they bounce from moments of expansive being to moments of very contracted existence. And they move like that. Every now and then they'll be charitable, they'll be, but then they will go back to being their fearful, self-preservative self again. This is the second category. And then the third category are people who live lives of abundance. They are so grounded in their ability to create the things that they want in their life that they go through life with absolutely no fear. They go through life rejoicing in the abundance of life because for them, every event is an opportunity to create. And they will turn everything to their advantage. A blade of grass is a weapon in their hands. They can make something out of nothing, every situation, because these people are not, they are so grounded in their own skills and ability that they can command life to present no matter which way, and they will change it into the narrative that they have of life. These people, this third category, are the true stewards and leaders of life and the world, and they are a real blessing upon the world. They can, they really lead nations forward. They lead communities forward. They lead families forward. They are people of great vision. And the rest of the humanity naturally flock towards them because in their presence, this rest of starving, famished humanity have hope. Mm-hmm. They see that they don't have to be this, 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 this scrounging existence is not necessary. They elevate them to that third level of humanity, which is on the border of divine. And that is what I see the biggest problem. Getting everyone to understand that this third category is where that is your rightful home. You should be able to be there. And and um, all my life, I have worked on ma- making myself understand what it takes to get there. And now at this stage, I'm beginning to see that I have to somehow 
communicate that this is how you get there so that as many people as possible get there. Mm -hmm. So I've got a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests, but before I I go there, is there anything else about, about the book or the work that you do that you'd like to make sure that the listener hears? Read it and you will come to your own conclusions. And it'll always be inspiring conclusions for you. It'll make you ask questions of how you are living life. I encourage you to read it. It is not expensive at all. I did not write the book to make a million bucks. I priced it on Kindle at $3.99, which is cheaper than a cup of coffee. You should be able to get it. Kindle app is free on your phone. So you should be able to read it. You don't need to even buy the Kindle. So my brand is Inspired Stewardship, and I run things through that lens of, of stewardship. And you used that word earlier as we were talking, but I've discovered that that word is one of those words that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So when you hear the word stewardship, what does that word mean to you? Someone who takes custody of life and takes responsibility for life, for the world around him, and he holds it in guardianship not in ownership, but in guardianship. Mm-hmm. So this is my favorite question that I like to ask everybody. Uh, imagine for a minute that I invented this magic machine and with the power of this machine, I could transport you from where you sit today and move you into the future, maybe 150, maybe 250 years. And through the power of this machine, you were able to look back and see your entire life, see all of the the contacts, all of the ripples, all of the impacts you've left behind. What impact do you hope you've had in the world? Oh, um, there's a Jewish proverb. Uh, You know, in the movie Schindler's List, Liam Neeson is Oscar Schindler and Ben Kingsley is this Jewish man. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the movie, when the uh, Allied forces are liberating Auschwitz and Dachau. Schindler is on his knees and he says, I should have done more. I could have saved one more child. I could have saved one more person. I have not done enough. And Ben Kingsley looks at him and he says that there's a line in the Torah that says, he who saves one man shall be judged as if having been saved the world. Mm -hmm. I have saved one man. And that is enough. Mm. I like that. So as we finish out uh, this year, what's coming next for you uh, into into the new year? The work I've been doing, talking about this experience of the pandemic, talking about book, talking about these principles I've been telling you about uh, experience and narrative and and my journey through the last 40 years has already inspired enough number of people to come forth and request me to talk more about it in more organized forums. So that's likely to gain momentum and move forward. Um, There are some very transformative events happening in my clinic that I feel are likely to make my clinic 
a place of uh, empowerment for more number of people. So that is likely to also gain momentum in this next year. My daughter's wedding is coming up, which is probably the most transformative event for me in my life. That's coming up uh, next April. So we're all excited about that. That's a big step. <laughs> yeah. She's found a wonderful man, Italian-American guy. He's going to be an amazing person in our life. And so there's a lot of things ahead. My wife and I are looking forward to traveling a little bit more. I have not traveled much. I love to travel. She loves to travel. I would like to just be in one place. My idea of traveling is going to a place and then sitting down and just sipping coffee and enjoying something. She would compress 10 vacations into one. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we, we've been married for 39 years. Yeah, so. you, I was going to say, you probably <laughs> need a little bit of her in, her in your life, and she needs a little bit of you in hers. So that's probably yeah. a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that's the, so that's what is ahead for us, Mori. So I'm excited about the openings that are coming and my ability to talk about them and share and, and see if we can elevate the dialogue forward in terms of, uh, I'm trying to talk about uh, the policy organizations of the world, especially in the U.S., need need some voices that will remind them of their need to establish much better guardrails that can guide the creativity of scientists. Scientists, for the most part, are highly ethical people. They are not. They don't get up in the morning planning to do evil. Mm -hmm. But their, their intellectual curiosity, which is why they are so good at what they do, sometimes pushes them, them, trouble into, too. <laughs> yeah, pushes them into dark alleys of the world. And believe me, nature has plenty of dark abysses where horrors exist that you don't even know exist. And if you are planning to go into those dark abysses, you really need to have some very sound guardrails to protect both you and the people of your house. And uh, that was what was lost. Mm -hmm. uh, people ventured into the abyss and did not know how to shut the door behind them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what happened here. You, you can find out more about Dr. Ravi Iyer and his book, The Reaper's Dance, over at, and I'm going to spell it out, www.driyer.com. Of course, I'll have a link to that over in the show notes as well. Dr. Ravi, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? Oh, start looking within yourself. Read my book, Start Looking Within Yourself. The answers you want in your life are not outside. They're not in any other source other than you, your own self. Start looking with it.
Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.